Great job. Well, hey, I want to welcome everyone who's here today and joining us online. We're so glad that you're with us today. My name is Ryan Snow. Um, I'm one of the pastors here on staff and, I, and on the board here, and I get the awesome privilege of just uh, speaking to you today. It's good to be back here. I like when other people come and talk. I, I really do, because like sometimes you get tired of hearing your own gums bump and getting like hear your own voice. But then sometimes, too, like, like I, I like being up here and sharing with you guys, too. So, but it was really good. Uh, I don't know if you were here or if you watched online. My friend Rob came last week. Um, I don't know if you were here. I thought, hope, hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, um, yeah, it was, uh, I love how he said that we didn't come to you with anything but um, with lofty words, whatever, but the gospel's power. And he just stood here, and it was the gospel's power. It was not flashy. wasn't like, you know, whatever. But, man, it was just like it was so rich and so deep and uh, just really thankful for him. What he said, and uh, just like the prophetic, I know sometimes that can be scary. I said to him, I said, we'll probably either have 50 next week or 500, and there's a little less people here, so maybe some people got ran off, but, um, but that's okay. It's like, you know, when, when the Lord talks, sometimes we ought to take the risk, because he's not like us, and he's not always going to say stuff that we exactly want to hear, but that can't be the type of people. Our lives will never have the purpose and power that we long for and that we're meant for if we only will do things that God calls us to, that we want to do, and that like we think are good. It, it, it'll never work out, because his ways aren't ours. He's not like us. So there's going to be times where he challenges us in great ways to do things that are, or say things that are not comfortable, not cool, not like the panache way to, that we think to do. He's got something about him that is different. And so uh, we want to be people that lean in and say, yeah. And um, <clears throat> with that, hey, we, we have a massive need still for children's workers. So if you're a parent here, I'm just going to just, just say this. If, if you're a parent here and you've never served our kids or students and you come here regularly, I want to encourage you to, to try that. Because first of all, like, we, we believe that um, discipleship is not just something that happens here on Sunday morning, but all week. And though you might be afraid or just want a break from your kids, it's also a great thing to get in there with them and for them to see you <clears throat> serving because kids see way better than they hear. So if they see you serving, they see you sharing, they see you jumping in, it could be a really great thing. And maybe you say, well, I'll serve, but not like necessarily in my kid's exact class. Perfect. We got a nursery. We got youth stuff. We got some kids' breakouts, whatever. But, and there's all kinds of ways to serve. It doesn't mean that you're up there teaching. It just means that you're in there loving in whatever uh, capacity. So I'd love to have you reach out to Steve. Steve's our kids' pastor or someone on his team. Uh, Michael Benedetti, Nikki, all, you know, he's just got a bunch of people around here. And if you see one of them, just, just reach out. We just, um, and, and we're only looking for people to serve one time a month. So it's not like a blood contract, like a Rumpelstiltskin, you'll never get out of jail free. We're just looking, if you, if a child is yours, for you to jump in, and also like if you're an adult and you want to find a way to plug in here, that'd be a great way to jump in. So there you go, Stevie, there's your push, bub. Um, so, hey, there are many things that grab our attention, and we stop for them. Like, anyone ever, like, driving, and all of a sudden, like, you smell food, and you're like, I want some steak. Or guys, you see a, a gal walk by, and maybe even awkwardly sometimes in front of your wife, you're, like, stopping, and you're like, whoa, and then you get the slap on the back of the head or the shoulder. Or maybe we stop for Netflix. Maybe we stop for social media, or we stop to talk politics or weather at the water cooler, or we stop for sports talk radio. 
there's all kinds of different things where we stop for booze on the way home, or we stop for gossip, or even if there's an animal on the road, we stop so we don't put the squirrel on our fender. You know, it's just like whatever it is or under our tire, we, we, all, we all stop. We have rhythms of stop. We either do it by choice or we do it by habit or we just do it because we're forced to. We, we all stop for a lot of things. And, and I think that a lot of people will say as we throw things out that people would say, does anyone's life feel busy and a little unmanageable at times? Like you have more things going on than you wish you did, and sometimes you don't know if there's enough hours in, in the day to accomplish it. That can feel really true. I would say, though, that you probably do find some time to stop and pause at times. Because uh, we all do. We, we all do. And, and what I want to ask uh, today is we're launching into this new series called Stop for the One, uh, Living the Available Life. Do you have margin in your life to stop for mission? Do you have margin in your life to, um, to serve and love others well? Do you have uh, space in your schedule where you can stop for the one? Or do you even have margin like in your life when you're going somewhere? Is everything so planned and so canned that nothing spontaneous can ever happen? Like I remember years ago, um, you know, I'm, I'm a guy... My wife likes to joke with me as, like, I carry around a clipboard of fun, and I'm very scheduled, and, like, you know, and you may have talked to me, and I got the attention span of a two-year-old, like, on a bunch of Kool-Aid. It's like, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm very, like, you know, but, like, God really convicted me several years ago. He's like, you have no margin in your life. You have no margin in your life, because there was someone who I felt like I was supposed to pray for, and I didn't, and the Lord really convicted me, like, you... And I'm like, why, why did I do that? He's like, it's not because your heart's not there. He's like, you, you just have no margin. You have no margin. You're too busy. You don't have rhythms in your life anymore where you're intentionally stopping for me. And so we've covered a lot of ground the past five months. And so what we're going to cover now is we're going to talk about stopping for the one. And this is a life lived on mission that's others-focused. And so, um, you know, after a two-week segue... Um, from our discipleship series, we're going to talk. So we, our first church, our first series here, church, was very kind of prophetic, upward focus about living lives of holiness in a kind of a crazy culture and world, and living lives that say yeah to Jesus. The next series was about in, about like developing close disciple-making relationships. This one's about out, about how we live on mission to reach people that Jesus is passionate about uh, reaching out to. And our strategy that we have that, uh, that basically kind of the Lord put on my heart several years ago, I was invited to speak about outreach and evangelism at this um, thing, and, and I just was praying about it, and this was, I think, back in 2013, I just kind of got all these different eyes. If you, like, if you know me also, like, I like alliteration, and so um, I got these different eyes, and, 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 and so what I felt like, and then the content team and I, we have a great team of people here at this church who... Um, started working with me on just like, you know, developing series and content. So it's just, you know, everyone kind of getting to play and lots of good creativity and ideas and spiritual thought and prayer. And we, and we talked about the seven eyes. So if we got that, um, like, so what I would call the seven eyes of evangelism or outreach or stopping for the one would be first eye is the isolated. 
is stopping for the isolated, reaching the isolated. And I say that the, that the eyes, the seven eyes of evangelism, there's a bunch of ways to reach out. We're not going to cover all of them in this series. But you might have heard me say before, I'm a low-hanging fruit guy. I'm a low-hanging fruit guy. And I found a lot of times when you look through the Gospels, these are the groups Jesus seemed to most effectively reach out to. Were the people in these categories. I'm not saying they were the only people he reached out to, and not saying they're the only people that can be reached, but the most bang for our buck, that the low-hanging fruit, if you reach into these people groups intentionally, I think you may see more productivity like in mission than you have at other times in your life. Or or like, you know, or or else you can probably say, Yeah, dude, like when I've been in this vein or when I do that, when I go to those places. This is where I see God move, and it's the isolated. This is like the addicted, the broken, people from family, families of addicts, special needs people, people basically that are cut off because of a choice of theirs or a choice of someone else or just because of a physical limiting condition. The ill. The ill are the sick, the shut-in, the, the broken, like the mentally ill. There's people that um, these people, when we reach out to them, um, it, it, a lot of times like the Lord just does boom injured. And these can be injuries on varying levels, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. The ignored. So we're going to talk about foster care, orphans, widows, elderly. Like these are the people that it seems like at varying place in the scripture, this is the litmus test. Jesus says, if you're doing this stuff, you're on my team. And the next I is the indigent. Indigent's just kind of a Charles Dickens word for poor kind of an older English word for poor, but poor doesn't start with an I, so we had to say indigent. So, um, so this would be the poor, single parents, undereducated, under-resourced, refugee people, um, the incarcerated. This would be people that have been in prison or in prison or maybe have a spouse or a boyfriend that's in prison, kids of prisoners, or maybe they're kind of addicted and they live in a prison or they're demon-possessed. And then the international Refugees, transplants, students, families, asylum seekers, language barrier, uh, you know, people that lack friends and family. These are places that, at the end of this, that I'll promise you, if you take intentional strides to lean into one of these groups, you'll have a different song you're singing in six months. Even if you're someone who leans in all the time to reaching others, if you say, okay, God, you put one of these on my heart, and you start praying every day, Jesus, will you give me some isolated people to reach out to? He will turn awkward people into Forrest Gump on a park bench whenever you come upon them. Good point. And I was just sitting there, and I just put on these shoes, and I was running. And, like, you know, and you'll be like, why is this dude telling me this? Like, Why am I Dr. Phil to everybody? Because you asked to reach isolated people. You asked to reach lonely people. You know, just start praying for one of these groups and say, Jesus, with whom would you have me share? Because we believe that disciples are easily activated into the mission of Jesus. And so we're going to look at some passages that show how Jesus stopped for the one. So in Luke chapter 15, if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn, turn with me there, or um, we've got it on the screen also. We're going to look at some passages. And what we're going to see today in Luke chapter 15... Luke has every, like, there's four different Gospels. And one of the questions someone asked when Bible answer guys, like, why are there four different renderings of the Gospel? And I think 
because I don't think anyone could say everything God wanted to say exactly like he said it. So I think he chose four different dudes to say it um, as he wanted it in a conglomeration. And so Luke is a guy, Luke is probably the most, um, seems to be the most educated of the writers. Like Luke's very technical. Luke's very much writes a fluid story. Mark tends to jump around a little bit. John tells a very straight line, like Jesus' BFF's perspective. And Matthew is this tax collector. And one thing that Luke talks about a lot is Luke, like uh, the rhetorical device he uses is comparison and contrast. And so um, what we're going to read is that one, one thing Luke likes to talk about are he likes to contrast very um, unassuming, unlikely people receiving the kingdom. See, Luke was, went with Paul. Luke was a doctor. He went with Paul on his missionary journeys. And Luke was actually commissioned by a guy named Theophilus. Both Acts and Luke talk about that. It says, um, it's like Feedback City. So, um, but Luke and um, Luke was commissioned by this guy Theophilus, and he says, like, I give an account. And we don't know if that's a guy's actual name. Like, the name uh, Theophilus means Theon Phileo, like, it's two Greek words that would be, come together to make, and it basically just means lover of God. Theon, or Theo, is God, and Phileo is one of, like, brotherly love. So this would be someone who's a deep lover of God. So Theophilus, he says, Theophilus, you commissioned me to write these accounts. So it seems like Theophilus was probably a Greek convert, as was Luke. So Luke is the one gospel writer that wasn't Jewish, as far as we know. So he has a little bit different perspective. So he's contrasting, and Luke talks a lot about the people that get to come into the kingdom. He talks more about what Jesus did with, like, with outsiders than anybody else. And so in Luke chapter 13, he contrasted a shepherd and a woman. Because in this society, these were low people. Women had no voting rights. They had no, um, they had no capacity to really initiate anything. They, they were property. Um, and so it was kind of a broken world. And we know that Luke emphasizes that Jesus was really the first world leader that said, nah, baby, nah. Like, everyone's one in me. The kingdom's for everyone. No matter how old you are, how poor you are, how rich you are, everyone has to hop the same bar to come to the kingdom. And that bar is just like, you have to accept what Jesus did. So it's not thing for a special class or a special group. And so Luke is going to hang out here. And what he uses, like these metaphors, is to say that both of these groups are valued and treasured. And we're going we're gonna to see that. So now it says in Luke 15, verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners. Sinners is actually a Greek word that would mean like poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Luke chose to pick a term that would be familiar in that time. Um, sinners, he was basically saying, can we do something about this? This is driving me crazy. Sorry. Um, I don't know if I need a handheld or something, but um, sorry about that. Um, but Luke, so this word that, that he uses, it's interesting that it's transliterated sinners. Because in the ancient world, they thought, is it still like crazy bad? We getting our mic up here? Yeah. Hey, our mic. Hey, come on up. Sorry, send up a guy. It's like, da-dance. All right. Thanks, guys. Sorry. Let's hear it for our tech team. These guys, 
I want you to know that everything that happens here, uh, these guys are never just back there saying like, yeah, we got this. We got it. Hello. There we go. All right. Much better. Thank you. Sean, you're a gentleman, a scholar, and a man of God. Thank you. So, Ezra, you, Jim, and Tristan. Yeah, these guys try hard. Let's give them a round of applause. Because basically the only time anyone notices these cats is when we got weird ringing or lights flickering or things not working. And it's a pretty thankless job. So you guys do so much. I appreciate it. So sorry to call you out in the middle of service. But um, so he said, so it's interesting that they believe that sinners, that people that were born with certain um, deficiencies must have done something really bad. Like their family must have done something really bad or they must have had it coming because God knew they were going to just be terrible. Um, So he said, now the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus and listening to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So also Luke loves the, Luke talks about food a lot and he likes to talk about Jesus dining and so Jesus, like this verbiage here, is a, is, sounds like a lot like a usual gathering, not a special event. So it's not like they went to Walmart and saw Jesus with the sinners. Like it seemed like G- they were ticked that Jesus normally hung out with the riffraff. So this was a normal occurrence that Jesus hung out with people of ill repute, of less than um, you know, desirable circumstances. And, and so these people took umbrage, and there was... There was an Old Testament and a rabbinical set of instructions around the forbiddance of eating with the unclean. And so the rhetorical vice that Luke is employing here is basically saying that Jesus came to set everything straight. So Luke will often talk about where things where Jesus, he uses language that would talk about that Jesus seems to be um, redefining things. Or providing the definition for things that were like otherwise kind of nebulous. Like Luke didn't seem like he loved Pharisaical people because I say he's a Greek. So in the Jewish custom, you were either a Jew if you were a Gentile. If you were Jew of Juden or of Judah of the land, you were a Jew, you were God's people. If you weren't, tough luck. And Jesus came saying, like, no, there, but there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies that actually say, no, 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 I'm starting with you guys, and you're going to spread throughout the earth, but your promise isn't just Israel, it's everyone. It's everyone. That My promise is for everyone, not just the Jewish people. Now, he, you start where you are. He started there, but he said this is for everyone, and Luke is highlighting that. And Jesus wasn't doing this as a way of sliding into sin, but instead he was pulling up sinners to where the life he was calling them to. So, and then he said to them, he told them this parable saying, he said, what man amongst you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other 99 in the open pasture and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders rejoicing. In Ezekiel 34 and Psalm 23, God defines himself as a shepherd. God defines himself in Psalm 66 as as a mother. And it's interesting that God chooses, he talks about himself as a king, as a boss, as a renegade, all kinds of things. But it's interesting that he picks two of these things that would be very low class in their society and says, yeah, I'm those two. 
I'm with those people too. So God is identifying. Do you know that Jesus is God's great identifier? Like Jesus came to identify with our brokenness, with our pain, with our fallenness, with our struggles. And Jesus could have come. He could have come as like the prince of Persia. He could have. He could have come born as, you know, wealthy as Jeff, uh, Jeff Bezos. He could have come like that. But Jesus came, this obscure dude in this obscure place at this obscure time to a bunch of obscure people to show the love and power of God. And he says, and then when he found it, he puts on the shoulder rejoicing. See, we see Jesus is talking about in this story, God is the shepherd. God is the shepherd. And we see him rejoicing, stopping for the one. That when there was one that was broken, he went out and found it. Does your life, does my life, suggest that not only do I have margin, but do I intentionally stop for the people Jesus stopped for? Are you willing to be affiliated with the same riffraff that Jesus was? I was born pretty poor. I was born in a family, well, especially um, when my mom and dad got divorced, it was kind of typical. Had a drunk stepdad and had a mom who worked a bunch of jobs and, you know, we were typical kind of low income family because even when the stepdad was in the picture, he was just hammered and not working. So we were really one income and my mom, you know, she didn't graduate high school until much later on. So we, we just grew up without a lot. Of, without a lot. And like, I remember what it was like. I remember we would get these blocks of cheese that would come in these uh, brown boxes. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, why are we getting cheese on our doorstep? It was government cheese. You know, I didn't know that as a kid. Like, all thinking like, oh, cool, Velveeta. You know, nacho time. And nacho. But, um, you know, you've seen Nacho Libre. There you go. Um, but I didn't. I didn't realize, like, we, we just didn't have a lot of the things other kids had. And I didn't grow up with much. And, um, but it's interesting that I found myself very convicted several years ago when I, I kind of realized, um, the further I got away from it and the more, you know, I mean, I'm glad I went to, you know, went to school after school and kept going to school and, you know, and so Lord's, you know, used that like in my life to, that my kids haven't had to grow up the way I did. We haven't always had a ton, but my kids never grew up the way I did or the places that I did. But I realized a couple years ago, like, Lord, I've kind of forgotten how to love those people well. And I realized I'd kind of gotten a rut where I was starting to avoid people more. Especially because I was, I was downtown several years ago, and this guy uh, tried to rob me, um, like, at gunpoint um, a couple years ago. Well, at gunpoint, he had a gun, was getting ready to pull out of his pocket, and I just made, like, a tree and got the heck out of there, like as Biff once said. And... Um, and I just took off with this guy. I was trying to give him some money, and it wasn't enough for him. He wanted everything. He wanted my car. And I was like, me, me. You know, I was just gone. And I was running, you know, and it's like, didn't that fit? I didn't even try to do that. I was like, just. Um, so anyway, but, but I realized a couple years after that, I really started kind of turning my heart off to the poor more. Because I had a pretty scary encounter with some dude. Like, I tried to give to him and tried to bless him, and it just wasn't enough. And um, I really had a reckoning about a year ago, and that reckoning kind of wrecked me. And the Lord's like, 
Ryan, I stop for the one. You gotta get over your fear. You gotta get, because there's also a part of me that didn't like, I don't like going back to those places because I hated living there when I was a kid. Like, I hated that place. I hated not having what other people had. And I hated all the yelling and screaming and the, you know, the, the stuff that happens there. I hated it. And so, like, but I never identified that. And so I, I, I lost margin in my life for that. But he says that, um, but Jesus loves broken people. He loves really hurt, messed up people. And not just like the poor. It's not just the poor. Jesus loves the addicts. Jesus loves the divorced. Jesus loves the gay. Jesus loves the, you know, he loves people that are just cast out for some reason. He loves prostitutes. Jesus loves, he just loves people. He loves everyone. But there's something about those that get no other airtime from anywhere else that Jesus is like, my eyes on you. And I want to learn better how to put my eye on what Jesus is looking at. Because I look and I see a mess and Jesus is like, no, I, no, I see potential. I see someone who needs me. I see someone who's going to respond. And the reason these seven eyes is like, honestly, it's, it's sometimes easier to, like, listen, it does not take any spiritual fortitude to build a big church. Do you know that? You can get a bunch of smart marketing people you can get a good band. You can get some skinny jeans, big screen smoke machines, as Rob said last week. You can get that. And there's actually, like, there are actually box kits out there you can buy. And pretty much I can guarantee within two years you'll have a church of 500 to 1,000 people. Like, cookie cutter. Guarantee. It doesn't take the spirit of God to grow something. I mean, if you sprain your ankle today, it's going to swell. That's growth but that's not the kind of growth you want. But it does take the spirit of God to go into the places he's calling when it's not real sexy and like the reward isn't real high. And it does take a lot to go into really messed up lives. And I'm not saying all these churches are bad, but, but they're not gonna have like the type of depth that the Lord's calling for. And when the piper comes, you know, I, I, I just, I wanna be a church that where, wherever you are in life, wherever your friends are, wherever your enemies are, wherever people are, they're like, I, I can be part of this. Because friends, people belong before they become. People belong before they become. Like think of what you were before God got a hold of your life. Or maybe you're here for the first time. Like we just wanna be a place where people, no matter what their socioeconomic background, whether their productivity, what their life choices have been, that you can come and say like, yeah, I think I, can, I think I can grow here. I think I can get better here. I think I can plug in and um, develop here. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. So when we stop for the one, when we, it's, this isn't just about Ryan or Chris or Lucas or whatever, or Amber taking and making a program. This is about individuals saying, discipleship is about me as an individual. I'm gonna do what Jesus is calling me to do to get her done. See, because none of us is going to probably reach like a million people by ourselves. But if everyone in this room reached a hundred people, that'd be probably, um, what, 20,000 people. Well, what if those 20,000 people, what if 10,000 of them reach 50 people? Well, all of a sudden we're at 520,000. 
know what I mean? And so it just gets, it gets exponential if we take responsibility for this. And if we got to individually learn how to stop for the one better. And you might be amazing at it, but I'm telling you, no one is as good as Jesus at it. And so if, if you're one of those people that's amazing at it, praise God, keep going. We want, hopefully this fires you up that there's going to be more people joining you on what you're passionate about. Because I love evangelism. I mean, um, I, you know, it's probably the, the, the part of the kingdom that probably comes most naturally to me. Uh, worship didn't come so easily. And, you know, friendship, I probably wasn't the best at because I was annoying and, you know, people could only take me for so long, but I could tell a rock about Jesus. <laughs> so, um, so what he's saying, he's, he says, and, and he says, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep at last. And this is a divine passive tense that's used here as a way of saying for God that God will rejoice when this happens. So Jesus is telling a story, but the way that Luke writes it and it, that he writes Jesus telling it, it's kind of this past and also a looking, like a look through the keyhole into the future. That when this happens, when you guys go do this, there'll be a lot of rejoicing over this. And it doesn't mean, and he says, um, and I tell you in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous ones who had no need of repentance. Like I said, a strong Lucan theme is God's love for sinful people. And the cool thing is that Jesus loves sinful people that he finds them and doesn't just want them to stay there. He doesn't, so there's an invitation like, come on, come on. Come with me, but there's a challenge to um, there's a challenge that we can we can belong and we can become that there's both things embedded in that. And so I want to ask: Are you put off by the poverty by the poverty, pain, stink, loss, or misfortune of others? Or do you judge people who hang out with people of ill repute? Does your heart does your heart for seeking the loss reflect that of Jesus? And there was another short story of the lost coin where it says, what woman has 10 silver coins, loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls her friends together and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, this picture of what happens not just in God's heart, but there's like a heavenly council like, like, the term, like the term that's uh, used there, Elohim. Elohim's a really interesting, like this word that's in, like, that in the presence of God and angels, that God, like Elohim, it's actually, it's a double Elohim. There's Elohim and Elohim. One of the names of God is Elohim, but it's actually interesting, like the name for angelic hosts is all, actually also Elohim. So there's like this divine council where God's saying like, listen, there's a party up in my mix. And these angels constantly praise God. And it's not like God has to go to the angels for like a business meeting each morning. That's not what I'm talking about. But there's like this council of people that God, that he's deputized to do his bidding. And they're working with him. We can talk more about that in our time. That's, that's a fascinating study that we could probably spend a year on. Um, at the end, it'd probably just be me, my wife, and kids, or maybe just me. But <laughs> So the point of this entire chapter is about the joy God has when lost things are found. And that each of these people stopped 
to look for the missing thing. That's the point. You know, I think, I think years ago, a quick story, I want to show, show a picture of my, of, of my best friend's family. My best friend growing up, Gabe Mahalski. I met Gabe. So real quick, um, in 1990, I, I never really went to church. I didn't really know Jesus. I probably went to synagogue more than I went to mass, but I didn't go to either a ton. And I had a dream in 1990, like in November, that would change my life. I didn't know anything about Jesus or salvation, but I had this dream, and at the end, I was like preaching to people. I was like, that's kind of weird. And there was a bunch of other things, like I was baptizing people and like telling people about the kingdom, and it was just weird, like a very prophetic dream. Fast forward four days later, I met this guy who'd become my lifelong best friend. He's that good-looking bald guy on the right, um, like on his knee, and he is, um, I just met this kid, and he just, we went to school together one year. He'd moved to town from Philadelphia, and uh, he wound up going to St. X the next year, then to Calvary Christian. But that one year, like at Glen Esty, I think he came for me. I think he came there because Jesus wanted to reach me. I think, I mean, I'm saying he wanted to reach other people, but like I, I was the one that just listened. This, this kid told everyone about Jesus. And um, I was just some fat little dorky bucktooth kid. I mean, I could eat like some watermelon through a tennis racket bucktooth. Like, like, I mean, it was serious. And, and for some reason, this guy just loved to tell me about Jesus. And I loved to listen and argue with him. And I was super annoying. I was, like I said, I was, the, I was a kid that your kids probably could not have played with. I was that kid. I was a, a jerk. I was a pervert. I, would, I mean, I jumped over a desk and started choking a kid out in class. Like, I was messed up, dude. Messed up. Like... I was a bad kid. I really was. And um, Saturday school was a common thing for me. And, um, but this guy loved me for some reason. And um, if he had not stopped for me, if he hadn't stopped and he hadn't told me about Jesus, like, I, I would probably be in prison or not alive. I mean, really. I was a bad, I was a bad kid on a bad track. He stopped for me. And his family just took me in. And I'll tell you what, come, being around his family, they weren't put off by what a little know-it-all pervert, jerk, annoying person that I was. And I was like, they just kept loving me. And I saw this thing about family and their friends, like their, this oikos that they had, these, all, these Christian people that just came around. And these people like love me lavishly, like annoyingly sometimes. I'm like, what? Like, they would always pick me up. Hey, you want to go to youth group? Hey, you want to go to the game with us? I mean, just everywhere they went, I was going with them. And they just loved me. They stopped for me all the time. And so much so that um, God changed my life. He changed the trajectory of my life by these people. I mean, it saved my life. And I remember several years later, I ran into my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Hudai. Mr. Hudai, I ran into him, and I don't know how I, I can't even remember where I saw him, but we started talking, and he just started asking me what I was doing and how I was doing. And um, we were talking, and I said, hey, you know, like, I was like, I, I haven't seen this guy in a long time. I was like, you know, I, I love Jesus, and I'm working with a church plant right now, and um, I've got a wife and two kids, and um, he said, What? And we started talking, I was like, and, and I was just talking a little more, he's like, I, I just gotta stop you. I'm like, why is that? He's like, um, 
he's like, this is really weird that I'm even seeing you. He said, within the last couple, I can't remember if he said the last couple of years or the last couple of months, my wife asked me who was the worst student I ever had that I was most afraid of what they would become. He literally said, he said, there was this one kid, Ryan Snow. He said, I would not be surprised if he is either leading like a, like a organized crime organization or he's in jail or he's dead. He said he was the worst of the worst. He said this kid was so messed up and he had all these brains and he, could, he, he would think of things that were just pure evil. And he, then he said to me, he said, you know, but I gotta tell you one other thing. I don't believe in Jesus. He said, but for the fact of, he said, I've heard about him, obviously. And for the fact of you can stand here and you're changed by him, he's like, I've gotta think about something again. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not like some like prince of a guy standing up here. I mean, I'm just a polished turd, you know, who's up here. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I'd be lost if it weren't for Jesus. If someone didn't stop for me as a one person, if someone said like, because listen, I was a one no one else wanted. I mean, there was times like in my life, my parents didn't even want me. I was in foster care and there was like times like, you know, my, my grandparents like loved didn't even, you know, there was just a lot of stuff and like no one wanted me, but Jesus did. No one. And so your pastor is not some dude that's coming at it like, hey, I've got it figured out. And, you know, I'm not. I, God figured me out and he just said, come on. Um, so stopping for the one is just love and action. And so I wanna ask, what if no one stopped for you? What are the ramifications if you don't stop for that one today? Like, what if Gabe hadn't stopped for me? Like, what if he hadn't stopped, stopped for me? I believe God's used, used my life for a lot of good. And hundreds, maybe even thousands of people know Jesus now that wouldn't. What kind of carnage would have fallen in the wake if he hadn't stopped for me? Each life matters greatly. Each person you pass has a story and they, they count. They count. They matter to God. Like he will stop the whole daggone thing for them. He will leave the rest and go search for them because that's who he is and that's how he is. An interesting baseline metric, do you know how we stop for the one seems to be the litmus test that we're going to be graded on when we stand before Jesus? He's not going to ask, actually, do you know the sinner's prayer never comes up when you stand before God? It seems like in Matthew 25, the people who stop, he says, there'll, be, there'll come a day, there'll come an accounting where he separates the sheep and the goats. And the goats, well, the sheep on his right, he'll say, I was really hungry, and I was thirsty, and I was in prison, and I was marred, and I was messed up, and I was a pervert, I was a liar, I was a loser, I was a flander, I was whatever, and you stopped and reached me. And I'd be like, Lord, when were you a pervert, a liar, a loser, a flander? When did, and he's like, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Come on. And then to those on his left, he's gonna say, where were you? Well, Lord, when were you a liar, loser, flander, or pervert? Da, 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 da. He's like, I was everyone you looked at and judged. 
I was right there, but you had to keep going because you had made it. Depart from me. I have no idea who you are. So our metric is not going to be, did you say a prayer? Did you go to church? Did you tithe? It's going to be, did you stop for people that were broken and busted just like I stopped for you when you were broken and busted? We're going to end with a uh, quick video clip, and then we're going to uh, pray. Anyone ever seen Schindler's List? I want you to watch this great video clip at the end. Uh, Schindler's List, it's, it's a real story by Steven Spielberg. He was this German business owner who was just a wealthy, powerful guy, and um, he was just pretty lost in himself, but he came to see what the Nazis were doing to the Jews, and so I want you to see at the end when Schindler basically has to escape towards the end of the, end of the war what his interaction is with all these Jewish people that he wound, he wound up helping these people. He wound up stopping to save these people. He wound up selling his fortune and things slowly to save more people. Let's watch. It's Hebrew from the Talmud. It says whoever saves one life saves the world entire. I didn't. 
Lord, would you give the Florence Vineyard a heart like that for lost people? Lord, the stakes are the same, whether we die in the Holocaust gas chamber or we just fan out when we're 90. If we don't know you, we die forever. If you don't know Jesus, prayer team, just want to invite you to come up. If you don't know Jesus, you're like, I want a God who stops for the one. We want you to come up. If you've been waffling, if you're on the fence, or maybe you were around for a while and you just don't, you're coming back. We just want to encourage you to get prayer today. Because there's a God who loves you who'll stop for you. Or if you just can say honestly, like, man, I, I, my heart doesn't bleed like Gabe's does or Oscar Schindler's did for people to know Jesus. This is a good time, too, to just say, Jesus, I, I just need to look at the world differently. I need your eyes, your heart to stop, to stop for the one. To stop for anyone. Maybe, maybe you don't talk, talk to anyone about Jesus. Maybe you don't stop for anyone. Maybe not even your own family. And Jesus would just say, come on. Lord, would you just meet us today? Would you let us be people who stop as you did? Fill our hearts with care. Break, break our hearts, Jesus, of what breaks yours. us to stop for our neighbors, for our friends, for our co-workers, for our enemies. Lord, I hope no one feels condemned today, but challenged and called to action. Lord, there's always one more. There's always another thing, Lord. Lord, help, help. I pray you would be our thing. And doing what you did would be our thing. Come, Holy Spirit, and rest on this place. I pray you fill up this church, Lord, not so we can say, oh, we found, found the ingredient, but that we, we've actually got the cure. And that we know there's lots of people in this world desperate for the cure, desperate for purpose. Would you fill us up because we're a place that goes and we're a place that sends. At our heart, we want to be just like you. And our practices, we want to be just like you. So we invite you, Jesus, and we just bless you. In your name we pray, amen. If you want prayer, come on up. If you got kids, please go get them and have a good week. Love y'all.